Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. I'm Dan Dietrich, and this is Doug Padgett. And uh, it is a Wednesday, so we're talking about things faith-related. And uh, we're going to go back to a little trip we did to Chicago uh, just this past August. Dan, do you remember when we walked into the Parliament of the World Religions this summer? And uh, we were like, all right, we're setting up a booth, working with um, uh, a project that Joe Carson, frequent listener, uh, made possible uh, to have there. We were talking about whistleblowers, and then we're also doing our Vote Common Good thing at, at a little table at basically, if you've ever been to a trade show, this thing is a trade show of the world's religions. Yeah, just uh, conference. rows and rows of booths and exhibits, as well as the, you know, the big main room with a you know, stage and lights and all that. Yeah, just just the classic, you know, then a big lobby and people with lanyards around their necks. And but in this case, it was people from all around the world representing uh, world's collection of religion. And this is a meeting that happens on a fairly regular basis. It's not annual. Sometimes it goes 10 or 20 years. I think maybe it happened once and then it had a 30 year hiatus and it was back on. But anyway, it happened. It's been in, going since the 1800s. I don't know if yes. you remember that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's been a thing for a while. Yeah, like around the World's Fair or something, if I remember right. Maybe Chicago World's Fair, uh, the book, The Devil in the White City. By the way, have you ever read the book, The Devil in the White City? No. A tremendous, like, historic, fictional book. Um, true story about the World's Fair in Chicago, one that... Um, Brought a number of things to to uh, human humankind, including the Ferris wheel. A whole story about how the Ferris wheel was a technology and an engineering feat that outdid the Eiffel Tower from the previous World's Fair. And there was all this competition about what what thing was going to make this World's Fair famous. So all kinds of things. I think Aunt Jemima pancake mix. And maybe some some other food like Skippy peanut butter or something. Huh. So, world, world's a big fair. Year. And also, it's like eighteen ninety something. And also, a murder, oh. a mass serial killer working the world's fair. And so, this book tells the story of both of these things happening at once, and it is tremendous. I think the person's name is Eric Larson who wrote it. And I rarely remember a, a random author like this, but. So good. So if you're going on vacation or you just need a little little uh, read, The Devil in the White City, highly, high, highly acclaimed. I'm going to check that um, out. But yeah, it was fascinating. We got together at the Parliament for the World's Religions. Didn't know what to expect. I, I liked the idea, uh, but zero expectations of what it would be like. And it was just a kaleidoscope of colors and religious <laughs> garb. Um just found it fascinating uh, in all the ways. And it was a reminder of like, you know, we have religious garb in our country. We have some people wear robes, uh, you know, some people it's just a suit and tie, but it's a very particular look depending Mm -hmm. on your denomination. And uh, Mm -hmm. as a reminder that we all play dress up a little bit, you know, we, it's all cosplay. (laughs) It's all cosplay. (laughs) Life is life is cosplay. So if you think, uh, what what wisdom could come out of some guy that wears the same hat and outfit every time he goes somewhere? Uh, well, uh, I was pleased to meet uh, Oberon the wizard, uh, who also had a hat on, 
um, because I wear this, this silly blue hat all the time, uh, in my professional work and often the same outfit, uh, a blue shirt of some variety. And then almost always the same pair of like burgundy pants. It's a bit of a uniform. Uh, so if you've never noticed or no, nobody should care, but it just makes it easy for decision-making about what I'm going to do when I do work stuff. So I put that outfit on all the time. And I was wearing this during this interview with Oberon, who you will see in a moment is dressed as a wizard with a wizard hat, a beard that should be a national treasure and um, a staff in his hand and a robe and the whole be, deal. He'll be quick to uh, correct you. He's not dressed as a wizard. He is a wizard, and this is how he dresses. He's, yes, <laughs> so right. That is so right. Yeah, he's not dressed up as one. He's like, yeah. I know, I'm, I'm a real wizard. And he's not goofing on Elvis here. Like it's, it's a part of what he's doing to connect himself to a previous era and to pull that forward. So, so, so we, we met him and if you, if you listen to the podcast from a week ago, we did an interview with uh, a person who practices Jane, uh, religion, faith. That was so great. I've still been smiling about that. Re-listening to that interview. Well, the same day or earlier that day, we had, we had met, uh, Oberon and, uh, uh, asked him if he would come over and he did. And he's such a sweet person and so wise. And remember, Dan, we found out from a lot of the other people in the kind of in the pagan religion traditions mm-hmm. in the United States, Canada, they were like, I cannot believe Oberon is here. The wizard like yeah, to them, he, <laughs> really big deal. And, uh, and at first our, my attraction, maybe yours too, to him when I first saw him was like, Oh, there's quirky. I would love to interview quirky. Yeah. You know, a 30 minute conversation with him. You're like, this guy's not just quirky. This guy is really up to something and his own story. And, and again, what we mentioned last week, for those of us from the tradition that, that we come from, you know, the Protestant Christian and evangelical traditions in America, trying to push the system to, of our religion to be better in the world. That's the same thing he's trying to do with, with paganism and heathenism. Uh, so a tremendous conversation. Yeah. And then you'll hear another interview with Carl, the heathen, a, a self-chosen uh, reference heathen. I think he was probably given the name Carl, if I remember right, but heathen he picked. So it's not used as a derogatory term at all. He practices heathenism. And uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Maybe we'll do a little commentary in between these two interviews. Uh, but you also hear from from Carl, who also has some garb that he wears and things that uh, that represent the the heathen heathen pathway forward. And it's kind of into like for the heathens, it's like really into the gods, like Zeus, like the and, Norse, and more the Norse the gods, Nor- yeah, like Thor and Odin and all those. Yeah, I mean, they talk about Thor and Odin, like you know, people talk about. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It was just utterly fascinating. And a lot of really helpful material that came out of these conversations with these with these two. So uh, yeah. just, I really, really adored it. what's interesting with Carl is uh, he's a part of this heathen, I don't know if you'd call it a denomination or a strain of heathenism, but it's inclusive heathenry. And so they are expli- explicitly against any of the like, white nationalist, uh, white supremacist, Germanic symbolism uh, that sometimes gets hijacked (laughs) from uh, these Norse traditions. Uh, But it's really interesting. And like a lot of the people at this parliament, these are people 
kind of leaning more progressive within their traditions. They're trying to push things forward and make it a bigger tent that includes everyone. And a lot of them come out of, well, these two in particular have had experiences in the Christian church and are like, well, this isn't a big enough tent. It doesn't include people like me. It doesn't include people that I love. And so I got to find something else. And so both of these guys are part of traditions that, well, Oberon the wizard started his own church called the Church of All Worlds, which we'll get into. Uh, But it's just a fascinating human story. Yeah, that, that's right. I forgot. And, and Oberon is like, uh, like a, like a religion founder. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's around a, you know, it started know. this religion back in the sixties. And that's been kind of a big part of his life's work is creating a new religion. Why not? Yeah. So anyway, just, just going to be delightful. Uh, gather up the family, call the aunties, call the children and get them out of the streets, bring them around the, video box there in your in your house or your car wherever you are and uh, let them let them tap into a uh, to a wizard and uh and a heathen in this uh, wonderful conversation now again we're in the conference center the mccormick convention center in chicago so that's the setting we have a little booth we invite people to come to come sit in our booth and somehow the juxtaposition of like talking about religion and its meaning in the world and how we do it with uh, a wizard and talking about the pagan religion and then talking with a heathen while you're in the middle of a conference center and people are walking around with lanyards on and tote bags and tables of displays. <laughs> it was all just too much, just too much. So anyway, that's the setting, our little uh, on the go fast rig that we have, uh, that we have there. And, uh, but I think you will, um, I think you might enjoy it uh, quite, uh, quite, quite a bit. And please uh, keep up in the comments. We will be commenting as well as we go. And, uh, and we'll give it after the Oberon. We'll we'll chat with you here in a minute too. So, so here is Master Wizard Oberon Zell. Well, Oberon, thanks for being on our Common Good podcast. I might yeah, remind everybody that we are sitting at the Parliament of the World Religions event in Chicago, and your uh, presence and outfit is a standout. A number of people <laughs> uh, earlier, a day or two ago, said, "Have you seen the person in the wizard outfit?" And so it's such an honor to speak with you. Thanks for sitting with us for a minute. Well, that's very amusing because I don't really think of this as a wizard outfit. I yeah. am a wizard, you know. I yeah, mean, that's right. It's not really an outfit. These yeah. are my clothes, you know. Yeah, it's like my podcast outfit. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay, so so can you can you tell me about what it means to be a wizard and oh, what sure. it is that you're... Um... Well, you know, a wizard, the word means wise one, basically. And uh, wizards are people who are expected to know stuff that people come to for advice and counsel and, um, and, and generally helping to make the world a better place. It's, it's, um, it's not a religious vocation. It's a profession like being a professor or a philosopher oh. or a teacher. You can be a wizard in any religion. Huh. You know, I, am a, I do have a religious affiliation, okay. as would pretty much anybody, but it's not, wizardry is beyond that. I'm I a see. pagan in, in my okay. own faith. Yeah. And, um, uh, my particular tradition there is the Church of All Worlds, which uh-huh. I founded in 1962. You founded the Church of All Worlds. I did. Wow! I'm, I'm the founder nice of that. To meet you. Thank you. Yeah. It was amusingly enough inspired by a science fiction novel. So, okay. but then again, one can say that all the religions were inspired by some myth yeah. or other. You know, and I just regard science fiction as mythology. Nice. Can you? 
tell us about that experience back in 1962? What was going sure. on and why? There's obviously, we're at, at this event, it's clear there's a lot of religious expression. There certainly right? is. We're, we're just in one little corner of a massive movement. Well, what, what brought you to want to start something fresh and new? Well, that's a very good question. I like that a lot. I grew up on world mythology. My first, earliest reading as a child was the Greek myths. And so I was always fascinated. I pursued mythology, folklore, fairy tales. All eventually that led me into reading fantasy and science fiction. And during the 50s, when I was growing up, um, uh, a science fiction author named Robert Heinlein wrote a series of a dozen juveniles that one came out every year, and they were sort of the Harry Potter novels of my okay. time. You know, you'd yeah. wait for the next one to okay. come out. And the local librarian would always set it aside for me and say, hey, the new one came in for you, you know. Okay. And they were all about what does it mean to be fully human? And science fiction can address that the way no other literature can because it can offer in comparison to what? So, and so this whole series of very amazing teaching stories came out um, in wonderful stories. Several of them have been made into movies and TV series, Hmm. of which at that time the most popular was one called Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, which came out of one of his stories called Space Cadet. And that kind of was a precursor to Star Wars and the whole right. assumptions of the Academy, you know, and all that. So it had quite an influence. And when I completed high school, and for me, high school in the 50s was just like the movie Pleasantville. Okay. You know, that's exactly how it was. Where did you grow up? Where, where was this? It was where uh, actually near here. I grew up in Crystal Lake, which is okay. northwest of Chicago. And my uncle had a um, the gift concession at the Benetio building, Zell's Card and Gift Shop. All right. That's, that's my name. And um, and on my summer time, I, I worked at the top of the rock, at the gift shop, way okay. at the top of the Prudential Building, which was, at that time, the tallest building in Chicago. And um, during the on the weekends, when I didn't have to work, I'd come in and go to all the museums here. So I was very connected with wow, Chicago. I it's say. kind of my home territory. Yeah. So even though you lived in, like, a small Pleasantville town, you were exactly. coming into the... Yeah, it was about 50 miles out, you know, and they had a train. It was a bedroom community. I, I know you're going somewhere with that story, but can yes. I circle back to the, that comment you made about science fiction yes. gives us an additional way to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? Because right. we can contrast it with something else. Exactly. And That's they, a real wizardly well, uh, comment. Thank That's you. really wise. Well, um, the, the You great mean like, because then you can introduce... Right. Aliens or, yeah, or other, other cultures, and cultures civilizations, and, or religions to reflect on exactly. on the question of humanity. Exactly. A lot of people who stu- who don't pay attention to science fiction don't know that that's what it's doing. They think what people are doing is talking about just other silly things that aren't real. Right. But you're saying no. There's another way to read science fiction, oh, which is a reflection on the human endeavor, which just feels like what religion wants to do is ask the question, it can we be human in a more flourishing way? Precisely. I mean, the great questions are, who are we, and where do we come from, and where are we going, and how will we get there? These are the big questions we all have to ask ourselves. And, of course, the one that I always tell people when people ask me, well, you're a wizard, what should I do? And I say, you should figure out what you're here for and do it. So that kind of stuff. That's the kind of way. What are you here to... for? What did you figure out that you're here ah, for? I figured out back in when I first went off to college in 1962. Okay. Or 61. I mean, 1961. Again, high school in the 50s, college in okay. the 60s, archetypal eras. Wow, you're just right on the money. I was. Yeah. Uh, was one of the first classes said, uh, draft a mission statement for your life. Wow. 
And my mission statement, which I've always held to all these 60 years later, was to be a catalyst for the coalescence of consciousness. You already uh, you you had alliteration built in when you were 18 years oh, old. I love alliteration. A catalyst <laughs> for the coalition coalescence. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you do it again. A catalyst for the coalescence of consciousness. Of consciousness. So that's okay. my mission. <laughs> All right. So you're a kid. Yeah. Um, your dad owns a gift shop. My my uncle. Your uncle. Your parents are helping you find books? Are you in religion nope. at the time? Are not, you not doing really. all this well, on your well, own? I guess I was. I mean, my folks were uh, members of the Congregational Church, okay. and I loved it. I, I, I had a perfect attendance record in Sunday school all the way through high school until I went off to college. So, you know, I was very involved in all of that. Do you, you think know? your alliteration desire started with being a part of the Congregationalist Christian Church at the time? <laughs> Possibly. I, I, I think it was just that I enjoyed okay. book titles that alliterated. You okay, know, yeah, yeah. You like, like language. Like I do. You're, you're I love language. It. Absolutely love so language. So you're kind of going to this church, but you're right. you're different from your parents in this sense. Very That's what much. you're saying. I felt like, a, as uh, we say in our community, like a changeling, ugly duckling, you know? Really? Not not part of that thing. Okay. I've been feeling alone and isolated. I used to go out in the backyard with a flashlight to try to signal the flying saucers to come and take me where I'm supposed to be. You know, that sense of not being of the same people that you're wow. born to yeah, is sure. a very common one among us pagans, you know? Yeah. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, so a lot of you, when you're together, talking about your growing up and yeah, we younger were always, years? We felt alone and isolated, and okay. we were looking, maybe, is there anybody else out there like us? But when I went off to college, I found someone who was for the first time, my friend Lance Christie. And that year, 1961, Robert Heinlein's latest novel, culminated his entire series of juveniles with one called Stranger in a Strange Land. And it was brilliant. Wow. And it's laid the foundations for the entire cultural revolution of the 60s. The entire counterculture came out of that one book. Really? Yep. There were two profound things. The invention of this birth control pill in 1960 and the publication of Stranger in a Strange Land in 61. Really? Can you recap the book for me? I'm not familiar with it. I was born in 66, so I uh, should have known about this book, I would think, but I don't. Well, you know, it's one of those things that if you mention it, there's people who will light up and say, oh, yeah, that's the book. And other people say, I've never heard of it, you know? Okay. And uh, the basic story is that um, the first manned expedition to Mars crashes and everybody's killed except one baby who had been born on the journey and who's discovered and raised by this ancient Egypt, a, a Martian race, okay. indigenous Martian race. So 25 years later, another expedition is successful. They find the young man and bring wow. him back to Earth. But he's been raised in this totally different culture. And think of it like we go to the jungle and get a baby chimpanzee. Sure. We yeah. bring him back. We raise him up in yeah. human stuff. Yeah, it's teach jung- him yeah. sign language. And imagine if then he goes back to the jungle. Yeah. Well, that's the story. Right. It's the story of Jungle Book also, what you're it, telling. It if you is. remember, yeah, yeah Mowgli. It's the story yeah, of okay. Jungle Book, exactly. So, yeah. It's a very good story. Yeah. And he just did it as a, with a science fiction Love flair. It. Love it. So this kid comes back with all these. See, in Jungle Book, the Mowgli is being raised by animals. Yeah. But imagine if the same story had been raised by superior More aliens. sophisticated. Okay, right. I see what you're doing. Yeah. So Great. that's Great. the story. And he looks all at right. all the things we take for granted and, and um, things like... You know, politics and sex and relationships and religion and afterlife and and money and politics, all kinds of stuff that nobody had ever written in science fiction before about. You know, these were taboo topics, but they're ones we just take for granted. And as each of these is examined, the reader 
becomes one of the companions following along with this Martian kid, Got you know, it. whose name is Valentine Michael Smith. And somewhere along the line, he encounters this wise old wizardly character who is, in fact, the author, Heinlein, who injects himself into all of his stories as the wise old man who offers okay. advice and counsel. So he's the wizard. Is the this story. your first sort of envisioning of a wizard in your own, like a more sophisticated version than whatever you might very see in much, a fairy tale. Very much, very much. My, my, my concept of wizard has always been the wise old guy who knows stuff and who advises the young. I mean, that's the main job of a wizard, okay. is to be the, the mentor and counselor for the young hero. That's the reason every story, whether it's Obi-Wan okay. Kenobi or Merlin or whoever it is, Gandalf, okay. that's the job of the wizard. Who, who are your younger youngerlings that you're wizarding well, I have for? A school, How are you doing it? Uh, called the Gray School of Wizardry. Okay. And I actually, you know, teach this mm-hmm. stuff. stuff uh, is it a classic looking kind of school? Is it you meet outdoors? Do you have classrooms? Do you do we, it online? Well, most of it's online. Okay. So it's in a magic realm, and there's a uh, virtual campus in Second Life that's quite spectacular. Okay, I was going to ask, yeah. Right, but is we Second also Life have... still going? Is oh, that, yeah. that app that. Well, platform is still supported and yes, still has yes, people. It is. Okay, and we have a physical campus. We have yeah. a manor house in um, uh, Whitehall, New York. Okay, it's this big huh. place, and we've got dormitories and classrooms. Why and Whitehall, like New York? What, what? Well, that's where the person who set this up decided it would be the best place to be. Huh. It was uh, a dying little community, and uh, property was cheap. And got an old colonial mansion well, that looked like, like the that? part. And, there it is. I feel like there's a radio show called the Moth Radio Hour. Yeah, I feel like it comes out of Whitehall, New York. Really? I yeah, don't. But anyway, maybe, well, that's maybe. pretty okay, cool. But yeah. well, anyway, in this concept of the story, the old man whose name is uh, Jubal Harshaw is, uh, makes a mention that maybe with all these ideas you're fermenting here in this community, people follow okay. you. You could consider starting a church because religion is a null area in the law. That's a direct quote. If you can establish a church and get it legally recognized, <laughs> you can pretty much do anything you want. The Christian scientists, I think, had this exactly. approach, too. They, exactly. Yeah. Or the, even the Scientologists. Yeah, you know, that, that was it. That was the one. Yes, that was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. L. Ron Hubbard and Heinlein knew each other, were okay. friends, and Scientologists kind of made in a bet between them about this very subject. Is this so? Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, he does, and he decides to call it the Church of All Worlds. Wow. And the primary ritual is sharing of water. Because that water is the primal element that connects us all. And on Mars, it's a very rare thing. Yes. So you share water with somebody. And the theology is um, imminent divinity. You know, that we are all divine beings. We all, you know, like we're all like vessels that have all been dipped in the same ocean. Okay. And the water is the same that we all contain. Love it. So sharing water with someone and saying water shared is life shared. Okay. You know, and then thou art God, you know, is the primal ritual of the whole thing. Okay. So my first friend, Lance Christie, that I had met when I first went off to college, and I both read the book, and on um, April 7th of 1962, we shared water and pledged our lives to living and activating these principles, you know. So by this point, you're out of college. Yeah. You go to college. No, no, not quite. No, I didn't get out of college until 65. Okay. And at that time, up to that point, we had gotten about a hundred people who are water brothers within our Is little circle. Is that so? Um, and you were at college where? Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. Okay. And, How uh, do the good Presbyterians of Westminster College feel about the... Uh, 
<laughs> well, I was, I was the, definitely... The, the, water, uh, the water hood. Well, they didn't really know exactly about it. Okay. A few people did, but it was underground. It was kind of secretive, right. you know? It was our secret fraternity. Okay. We all adopted magical names. That's a bit of an important thing for people that feel like outsiders and loners Absolutely. is to have some protection yeah. To find each one other and form some association. That's the name that I took at that time was Prometheus. And okay. if you know the legend of Prometheus, that will tell you the whole story. Okay. But for those who don't, Prometheus in the Greek myth is the titan who stole fire from the gods yeah. and gave it to humanity. Uh-huh. So he brought enlightenment to humanity. Yeah. And so I identified with that story. Okay. It's a good story. So um, after we graduated, we all went off to different places and we began a discussion. Should we continue this being a secret underground thing yeah. or should we take it public? And Lance and I... Our relationship and dynamic and personalities were Kirk and Spock. Him being the Spock, me being okay. the Kirk character. Okay. And so as just absolute buddies, which we remain for our, our entire life together, he died in 2010, but um, we remain friends throughout wow. life. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sure yeah. that meant a lot when you lost I him. I know. Yeah. It's been, it was really rough. So he became chosen to head up the Secret Society end of it which is called the Atlan Foundation. Okay. Atl being an Aztec word meaning water. Okay. So we chose that. We liked that kind of stuff, obscure things. And I was uh, chosen to bring it to the public Church of All Worlds, which I did in 1967. Wow. And as soon as I came public with this, somebody asked a fateful question. He said, what kind of religion is this? Yeah. Are you... uh, I mean, funny religions were coming out of the woodwork back then. You know, we had the Krishna people and the Moonies and the Scientologists. Mm -hmm. And it's a fair question. So I said, well, having grown up in mythology and folklore, I said, I guess you could say we're pagans. And that was the first time anybody had ever claimed to be pagan. Pagan always referred to other people. Those pagans. Nobody ever said us pagans. I was the first. And with that, I began an entire movement, the pagan movement. Really? That has become the fastest growing religious movement in the Western world. And Do people know this in the movement, in the, in the pagan world? Oh, yeah, everybody world knows there. it. That's why I'm, I get so much attention and honor. I'm ah, the, founder. the founder. I'm the father of the entire pagan movement. <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. And I would hear about some other group, people doing Greek stuff or Egyptian stuff, and I would contact them and say, hey, you guys sound like pagans. I'm pagan. Let's all be pagans together. And people would say, yeah, that's How what we are. This? Come on. And this had the effect, well, Benjamin Franklin was once asked what was his greatest invention. And he said Americans. Because he was the guy who coined Uh, that term and united people who had not thought of themselves as any one thing before. They'd been Virginians and Catholics and Protestants and Puritans and and Vermonters and all that. He created a common identity of Americans that made possible the American Revolution. I did that. I created wow. a common identity as pagans that made possible a pagan movement. And in a lot of ways, religion really performs an identity function exactly. for people, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And this is what we need, is larger identity functions. Yeah. You know? And, when uh, did you take on the name Oberon? Or well, was that your I, given name? I didn't name? take it on. No, it wasn't. Well, it was given, but I did not. But no, it was given to me in a um, ritual format that I didn't really have much say about by, oh. by a person who was a namer with the... Um, uh, what was that? The uh, one of those Eastern groups. The, like the, that's a function someone has yeah, is to was, would always name people, and I wasn't a part of their thing. But I met this woman, and she looked at me and said, "When I see you, I see Oberon." And it was like this mantle descended from the heavens and wrapped around me. And 
Like you felt it when she said it and thought, yeah, yeah that does fit me. Right. And her partner was a, um, a fundamentalist Christian minister. Okay. That, and, and we were on a river, so I just had him baptize me in the river at that point and bring me up as Oberon. And so I've been Oberon. That was 94. 94. What I've were you called Oberon. before that? Prometheus? No. Oddly enough, my previous name had been o- uh, Otter. Otter. Which was kind of like a nickname because oh. I was living on a ranch full of hippies and um, <laughs> of everybody had nicknames. So Yeah, yeah. But this, this naming was different than a nickname. Yeah, it was. What's the difference between a nickname that you might pick up at a hippie living commune well, versus a naming? A, a nickname is what people call you, but it's not who you are. And a magical naming is an identity is who you are. Are you a namer now? Do you name people? No, I don't. I think people need to find their own names. We have a class in the Gray School of Wizardry on on choosing a magical name if you choose to. Yeah. And most of our students, apprentices, uh, do so, and many do not. Because it's not a requirement. But you kept the name that a namer gave you, but you want to encourage other people to choose their own. Yeah. Why didn't you want to choose your own? I, well, I would have if I'd given given a chance, you know. Like you couldn't undo it. You felt no. like whatever happened there right, it, had a permanency to it. It was, as you say, given. It was given to uh, me. And how I, about this? I had to receive it. Okay. You know, it, it wasn't a comfortable assumption because my wife, Morning Glory, at the time did not want to be identified with the, with the wife of Oberon in the story, Midsummer Night's Dream, oh, okay. which is where it comes from because that was not her. I you know, see. and so we had a little bit of a conflict about okay. that. She continued to be Morning Glory. Okay. But I became... That was a chosen name for, for her? That was for her, but okay. as a teenager, you know, uh-huh. it went way back. It, again, she didn't pick it. It was given to her Oh. in, in a magical sense. Okay. Huh. So, But I'm all for people finding themselves yeah. an, a name, and they may be a one that's given to them. It may be one they choose. It's whatever works. Um, I... I I don't want to over-project, but my guess is that you find yourself caring for some pretty tender souls I in do. this work you do. It is. That very people, much. when they find their way to you, they've had a hard run. People well, haven't I, understood them, yeah. and they haven't understood themselves, and they feel... Well, I worked professionally for, for 10 years um, in the slums of St. Louis with the Human Development Corporation, mm-hmm. and I worked in family services, and I had clients coming in off the street all the time who were really having a hard time. Yeah. I, I ended up kind of specializing in women who were in abusive relationships, uh-huh. which was just heartrending because I would work so hard to help them get out of that, you know? And every time they would go back to the guy, every time. And that was just, for 10 years I did that. And then eventually I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And I went back into teaching because I'm also a teacher. You know, I got a teacher certificate and stuff because yeah. I had this... I had two ideas in mind. One was creating a religion that worked, and the other one was creating an educational system that worked. Okay. And the religion one took up decades, <laughs> but I was successful. I'm very pleased. Yeah. You know, uh, the, I think my biggest innovation in that was the concept of Gaia. I was the first mm-hmm. person to originate the concept that the entire Earth is a single living organism mm-hmm. equated with the ancient Greek goddess of the Earth, Gaia. Okay. And... Um, and in about three, that was 1970. And about three years later, a British atmospheric scientist named James Lovelock came up with a very similar theory that became really famous. Okay. So, so now everybody knows about Gaia, but they don't necessarily know it through my yeah, version. Lens. They know it through his version. Well, so you're a school teacher, and you're working on the Human Development Project right. as a yes. uh, 
a caseworker or yes. something. Were you able to look the way you do now, or was there a point at which you took on the look that you currently carry? Well, I, I grew a beard in, in college, and I've kept okay. it ever since. Okay. So, you know, um, I've worn different outfits depending on what I'm doing, yeah. you know. I you mean, have this was... wonderful blending of your hair into your beard. It's indistinguishable <laughs> where the hair begins. In the... Well, that's all come from, from age and being an old man, you yeah, know. Well, I'm, I'm 80 years old, you know. So. You're 80 years old. Yeah. Well, you're looking really fresh well, and, well, and, and yeah my beard would have been a lot longer but i lost a lot of it when i had cancer a, a while back you know and the mm. chemotherapy kind of you know took away most of that so i've been trying to regrow it ever okay. since but it's never quite recovered yeah you know, how, like, how are you doing with the cancer where's that completely gone? gone okay it was um colon cancer and they took out my wow. entire descending colon and put me on chemotherapy it was a big deal that's a big deal big deal how long ago was that it was in 2007 okay. when that happened. Okay. So it's been a while. Yeah. So that, that adds some complications to life if it you did, don't have a descending did. colon. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, friends and, that have that my, situation. Yeah. And my life mate, Morning Glory, died nine years ago. We had 40 years together, and we were an amazing couple together. She wow. was wonderful. And after nine years, I've just recently gotten engaged to another wonderful, amazing woman. Is this so? I'm very excited about. Okay. So that means there's a there's a marriage coming, or is, on next May seventeenth, we are planning okay. a big marriage ceremony. Okay. Is there a reason for that date? You seem to be someone who picks things pretty carefully. Well, it is. Uh, we imagine. got together at an event called May Moon Magic at a uh, at a pagan retreat center in okay. Tennessee called Seren Arid that she was one of the founders of. So we met there this year okay. at the Beltane Festival, which is normally May first, but they do it on the f- full moon closest okay. to it. So next year. The festival will begin on Friday the 17th, and we're scheduling our, our big marriage for that time. Wow. Well, congratulations. Did you? Thank you. Nine years ago when Morning Glory passed, did you wonder if you would ever have this kind of yeah, relationship again? I, I, I did, and it's yeah. it'll be 10 years when we finally get married, and I I, I didn't know, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, so I've been kind of on walkabout all that time, okay. drifting around the country, you know? We were in California at the time, and I've been all over the... Western Hemisphere, visiting okay. people and traveling and on walkabout, and finally my path took me to Asheville, North Carolina. All right, which is where I am now. Wow, well, Brian, this is such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being so generous with your time and well, you're sharing welcome. your story with us. I hope you've enjoyed the story. I have very much. Cheers. All right, thank Cheers. you. Cheers yeah. to you too. So great. Uh, you might be muted still, Doug. Yeah, that was Oberon, and uh, you back? Let's see if uh, maybe I did something over here. You got there. You are. Hey, are your uh, <laughs> I don't know. Are your cheeks uh, are your cheeks sore from smiling? Is your is your heart uh, overflowing? I mean, what a what a guy, right? Just yeah. a sweet spirit and attitude. Just just downright lovely mm-hmm. just downright just downright lovely and then ends with that you know i at some point there at the end i'm like oh this is just two old men sitting around talking about our health and then he pivots into i fell in love again i mean just just really because look it, th- this is the thing you can you can wrap your religion in lots of packaging we all do you know you think you wear an outfit like oberon you wear uh 
your hat like mine, you wear a stole, you wear a collar, you wear tight jeans and white sneakers that cost $700, what, whatever your outfit is for your public, you know, religion leadership. And in the end, you're, you're people trying to find a way in the world and trying to figure out what you've yeah. been told and how you live and who you, who you can love and, and how you're going to go. Like that's, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Not to take away from all those different outfits there and, and religions and different teachings and different, that, that all really matters too. That's what gives life. It's, I don't want to flatten them all out and say everything is the same and, and who right. cares what's the difference. Cause the difference is what makes everything so interesting, yeah. you know? Um, just but I love that, uh, that bit where he's talking about you know, he started this religion based on a science fiction novel that was really trying to help us answer the question, how do we become more human, more fully human? And uh, I just thought that was really lovely. And hopefully it's the point of all religions to help us you know, feel at home in our bodies and feel connected to something bigger than ourselves. And, uh, yeah, I just thought it was, that was really nice. For sure. And, you know, one of the downsides to some versions of Christianity is that it tends to speak about people being godly in a way that is an opposition to being more human. And I think anytime, you know, the Bible context or whatever is calling people for whatever godliness, it really means to be more more human. There's a great phrase of Jesus about Jesus in in the Gospel of John, where he's called the Son of Man. That was one of the more more common, uh, and and we immediately want to pivot that into the Son of God. Uh, now, in the Gospel of John, they don't contrast those two. It's the same thing, right? Son of Man, Son of God. But boy, there's a sense that we want godliness to override our human humanity. So much so that we would have to whip up all kinds of theologies to explain this stuff around Jesus. Like there's a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of code going on to, to run that software theologically. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I think you're right. Like the call to be, to be human and human flourishing, that's, that's what things are about. Um, yeah. Well, we got time and that's, for and that's what are about. <laughs> come, come find it. <laughs> You want to jump into right, another so. interview here? We've got uh, Carl Bonebright, uh, self-declared inclusive heathen. And uh, we can hop back. I just, yeah, it's like, it's like when you're ordering desserts at a big birthday celebration and you see, you know, like, just, just give us one of each. Uh, you know, let's, let's get the heathens <laughs> and the, uh, the wizard. Uh, because this one's would, also interesting. A young yeah. guy who feels like he's found value in heathenism and understand the gods also recognizing that that same tradition, as you mentioned in the introduction to all this, has been hijacked by the by the alternative right and the white right in America, and he kind of has that look, and he's like, "Oh yeah, no, we're fighting those those people all the time." And uh, so, you know, every religion, every faith is in a context of some kind, mm-hmm. and uh, just fascinating. Yeah, here we go. Good. All right. All right. Well, welcome to the Common Good Podcast. We're here at the Parliament of the World Religions. The longest name, Carl, that I've ever seen for a conference. I haven't actually heard the second the in there yet. So I've just been saying of. I know. Well, I did the same thing. I was saying, and I even wrote it as Parliament of World Religions. And then I saw the program and said Parliament of the World Religions. And I thought, I think that definite article is actually important because it's, I don't know. 
seems to work in English. It does, it does. <laughs> but our interest today is not only in Parliament of the World Religions, but is in heathenry. All right, so Carl, I walked by your booth, yep. saw this uh, flyer that says, what do heathens believe? And I thought this is fascinating. When I first walked by and I'm like, okay, there's people who declare themselves positively as heathens right. as a way forward. Picked up the brochure, and I'm going to read the brochure, and then we'll let the words become flesh, and you can dwell among us and tell us what a real heathen is. I'll do um, my best. What do heathens believe? Heathens believe in the giving cycle. As the gods, plural, give to us, so we give to the gods, the spirits and the world around us, and one another. We believe relationships are made richer and deeper through participation in this cycle of gifts. We give as the gods give, without the expectation or demand for anything in return. I've heard the word heathen for, and I've been in Christianity since I was a teenager, and I don't, for whatever reason, in Christianity, that's a word that comes up. But I've never heard people talk about it as a positive thing that they're into. So what, what's a heathen for you? Well, a heathen for myself and for our organization, the, uh, the Troth, is uh, kind of reclaiming the word. Because heathen was used as a, a slur, as a non-Christian, a non-believer. Someone who, during the period of time when Europe was converting often by the point of the sword, to mm -hmm. Christianity they had not converted yet. And as an identifier of a northern European pre-Christian belief system, we are heathens. So Christianity in those those days, 306 to 600s or so, are we talking that uh, period of the, the common era? The, the predominant time of conversion was roughly all the way from the 600s to about the 12 to 1300s. Okay, that period. Uh, really kind of like the big end cap for it, as far as I understand it, would be the Northern Crusades, which are often forgotten, uh, involved a, a, a crusade northward in order to forcefully convert the few remaining pagan collectives up there. In, in what we call Northern Europe yeah, at this uh, point. Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Finland, those areas. So I'm from Minnesota. I'm not Scandinavia myself, but all the people I hang around with are. So this would be the history of, of those people. And you're saying that Christianity used the term to define all those people who had yet to be converted as heathens. Right. And you're picking that frame as your understanding of how you view the world because there was something positive that you found in that way of thinking and believing and living before Christianity arrived to convert it into something else. Yes, we, we appreciate and, and feel a resonance with the, the worldview of the gift-giving cycle of, and, and with the gods themselves as beings. Um, uh, our organization doesn't really dictate how its individual members interact with the divine. Some of them uh, only view the gods as uh, almost like Jungian archetypes nice. and they appreciate the worldview of the community that they share among others. Others believe them to be distinct spiritual beings. Oh. Pure polytheism in the classical sense. Um, I'm one of those, but again, we have members who are across the spectrum. And, and what do you call it? Do you call it in the heathenry? Is that the phrase you use? Or, what? Uh, or as heathens, we believe different things? Or what's like yeah, as, as, heathens, as heathens, we believe a variety of, of different ways to interpret the divine and how we interact with them and how they interact with us. How long have you been referring to yourself as a, 
Uh, a I, heathen. I've been... So pagan is kind of an umbrella, uh, over umbrella term that uh, has been used modern in a modern sense to describe any polytheistic approach. Oh. Like a lot of Wiccans call themselves pagans. There's uh, Egyptians; they call themselves Kemetics. There's Greek revivalists, Roman revivalists. They're all pagans. They're all we. Pagan is the umbrella term over yeah, that kind it. of like how that you have Baptist and uh, Methodist okay. and everything. They're all Christian. Yeah. So heathen is. The term that we have agreed to apply to those who worship the it. Norse, got what it. we use now use the Norse term, so Odin, Freya, Thor, Loki, the Germanic-speaking groups of pre-Christian Europe. So, if you're a pagan from the pre and practicing the pre-Christian Northern Europe expression, you would be called a heathen. Heathen. Uh, another term that a lot of folks use is called ausatru, which is from two words, the aus or ace, the aesir, referring to the gods, and true, meaning true to the gods. True to the gods. Right. And how long have you been calling yourself that? What's been your journey Uh, into this? I've been a heathen for roughly, I want to say, about a decade now, give or take. Um, (laughs) My mother was a church organist, so I was raised through a variety of different Christian denominations, whatever hired her whenever we ended up moving. So I've been Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, uh, Church of Christ. And uh, in in college, I broke away. I had disagreements with the theology and the uh, infrastructure and all kinds of different things. Uh, Kind of had a spiritual wandering, made my way through Taoism. Um, I've interestingly found that a lot of pagan, modern pagans who have stepped away from Christianity usually go through at least one uh, Eastern tradition, Buddhism, Taoism, yeah. or Hinduism, and before they end up in paganism. Interesting. And uh, and then he's, heathenism just resonated with me. Huh. It was, Who, how, how so? Who did, did you meet somebody? Did you go to a meeting, find it online? What? Uh, I, I looked around online a little bit, and um, my partner at the time encouraged me to just kind of meditate on it. Um, and it's, it's the interesting... Your partner at the time was a heathen? Uh, no, was, um, was just a, 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 another person who kind of was wandering with me. And, gotcha. Uh, they're actually Greek now. Okay. Uh, they, they work with Zeus and um, a couple others. It's my ex, so I don't know exactly what they're up to these days. <laughs> but um, Congratulations on that. <laughs> but, Healing uh, well done. Yeah. But, and uh, anyway, so I, I did some, some meditations and... and that is something that's actually been encouraged a lot for, for many people who are approaching this heathenry or paganism in general is, well, you know, how do I interact with the gods? With, if, you know, what if I feel a draw to Odin or Thor or Heimdall or Hel, the goddess, or Loki, what do I do? You, you sit quietly, you meditate, and you can, you can make little offerings. Uh, the gods... It, it's a kind of it's it's very much in the old classical sense where you have a little glass of alcohol or uh, water or whatever you think they might like, place it out, light some candles, and just meditate and see if you feel anything. Huh. See if you feel a call, and that's what happened to me. Um, I started doing that. I started reaching out spiritually, and I felt a pull from the Norse deities, and I've been here ever since. Do you remember the first day you said to someone, I'm now identifying 
as heathen? Do, like, I, is that a day you I, can I really don't, uh, it, because it happened online where it was safer and more anonymous a lot. Um, we have several people who are in our organization even who are still in the closet, so to speak. It's called being in the broom closet, <laughs> because um, paganism and heathenry are still... Uh, not necessarily safe to be out it in places of work or even family in many cases. Um, we've had members who have been fired. Uh, there are stories of modern pagans who have had um, their, the custody of their children threatened simply for being pagan. Um, so it, it started out online, and then I, I've, I'm fortunate that in my career and in my place of work, I am far enough along that I'm... That he's the weirdo, but he gets the job done. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm a software engineer, so... Okay. Um, I'm a, I, I can be out safely, and so it, it probably would have been three or four years after I've personally within my home and within my private life and even online in a few safe spaces truly became a heathen that I was able to be out, out and proud, as it were. Did you feel, before you were identifying as a heathen, when you heard about them or reading, did you think, wow, these kind of are weirdos? Like, did you think that it was odd, or were you like... No, it never seemed. You wouldn't have thought of it as odd. I, well, I never, I never really thought of it as as odd. Like you know, the the the, the Portland uh, you know flaming bagpipe odd, but it it was it was it was a bit of a surprise. Of I can't. I, I was surprised that they were around. Yeah. To find that there are modern pagans. I mean, we've known about Wiccans since the Satanic Panic, but the idea of uh, of sticking to a specific pantheon and working to recreate and restructure and revitalize, and in many cases reimagine because we don't have enough information, those pre-conversion beliefs and and rituals and things like that. Hmm. I, I was surprised that it was that it was around, and that's one of the reasons I joined this organization was to help get that information out there more so that people could find out about so it. So there's a group of people who've come from different heathen paths that join together to represent this larger heathen there, there are a movement. Few, yeah, there are a few heathen organizations out there, and, you know, disclaimer, um, many of them, um, and the ones, if you just search the news sites that, that, that pop up, will be... Um, how do I put this delicately? They will be uh, aligned with uh, far right or even white nationalist agendas at times. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like I've yeah. seen that and heard that partly because of the Northern Europe uh, focused narratives. Yep. Yep. They, the we call ourselves inclusive heathenry because we are inclusive of all social decisions, all social people. Uh, every race, nationality, ethnicity, the gods call whom they do, and we are not ones to judge who answers their call. So within heathenry, you even have inclusive heathens and... Folkish is what they call themselves. Folkish, what the rest of us might call exclusivist or... Exclusivist, extremist. Extremist. Yep. Probably isn't helping you all in this day and age to have the far-right... Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, no, One Percenters, and, Trump, Trump followers. And I, I will tell you that uh, our 
one of the one of the things that our our PR group does is when those like January sixth, uh, yep. let's you know, there's the the the, the shaman. Shaman. Yep. Uh, he had uh, a tree of life, and he had a Valk nut tattoo, yep. and he had that stupid helmet, and everybody called him the what yeah. the January sixth sh- yeah. shaman Viking or whatever. Yeah, the QAnon shaman. Yeah, the QAnon shaman. That yep. was it. Yep. Yeah. And Jason, so, I think, is his name. Yep. Yeah. So that's uh, we had to deal with that, and you know we keep our eye on the news when uh, organizations yeah. pop up. You know the the groups that's buying that church in yeah. Minnesota, yeah, and they have a compound in Tennessee. Yeah, we. We want to be louder. We want to be in the news more. We want to show wow. that inclusive heathenry is an option, and they do not represent our gods. It's and amazing because Dan and I are from the evangelical world. Yeah, we're trying to do that same thing inside the evangelical world, countering these same, so often some of these same people, right, uh, and these same movements. And then here, the heathens are having to say, "Well." We have our own problem. <laughs> problem. Problem that's afoot. We should partner on some things we really around should, all this. Yes. That is actually, to me, really fascinating. So the, the, this, the, the heathenry organization, I mean, is structured enough that you're here representing them. They're, right. You have a booth. Right. You have printed material. Like we there's do. a whole... We have a whole publishing wing. We have uh, books that are uh, translations of the I, yeah absolutely the, of the Icelandic sagas uh, that's that volume one we have three volumes right now volume one is history and that is our own uh, collected materials of everything from the proto-indo-europeans you know 2500 BCE all the way up through uh, the Viking age and archaeological finds uh, ritual tools reconstructed um, Ritual uh, formats, mentions by contemporaries, Christian documents that have sure. histories that have been written down. So, do you consider that a like a, a religious text or a sacred text? Or heathenry, we like to say, is an orthopraxic religion. Okay. It's uh, we practice right action as right opposed action. to an orthodoxic religion where we don't really have a sacred text. Like right belief. Yeah, the the closest right teaching. the closest thing to a, a sacred huh. text is probably the the Eddas. Um, it's okay. uh, epic poetry from the Scandinavian yeah. countries, the two most famous being the prose and poetic Eddas from uh, Iceland, written down by Snorri Sturluson in the 12 to 1300s. Wow. And it's it's funny when some heathens try to tr- try to, to almost uh, we call it Edda thumping as opposed to Bible thumping uh, with the with the Eddas you know I, I, I tell them that the prose Edda was Snorri Sturluson's glorified Wikipedia entry he didn't write it because he wanted to write down the myths of the people that had converted because it was 300 years later he was worried about a slam poetry style going out of going out of uh, favor nice because the poetry of the time uh, relied heavily on a thing called kennings which were very very tight specific mm-hmm. metaphors a prime example being there was a famous Viking king who went on many sea raids and there was a poem that referred to so-and-so's stallion. And if you didn't know about this king and that he was a seafaring Viking, you wouldn't know they were talking about a boat in this specific poetic, wow. poetic instance. And Great. so Sturluson wrote down the prosetta because you had to know about the myths and the famous people in order to keep up with the poetry. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the parallels between that and how people should understand sacred text inside the Christian tradition, so similar, right? Like, it's 
context of a person trying to respond to a set of conditions in their time and then over years are you know, re-understood and right. infused with whole other meanings that then trouble people. Yeah, I mean, and, it, and it's not to say that we can't use these yeah. sacred texts or, you know, Wikipedia entries to find wisdom and to guide us on our spiritual journeys, but we can't treat them as, uh, what's the word, uh, unquestionable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. Has it surprised you, knowing what you knew about Christianity in your earlier days, then getting into heathen world, to see so many parallels to the circumstance that any belief system with a group of people that have an ancient story that they're talking through? Are there times where you're like, wow, this is so much more like Christianity than I thought? There, there is a lot of similarity, and I, I think part of that is the the nature of, of religion and how humans interact and splinter and disagree and and part of it is as far as i know in terms of percentages we're at maybe 10 percent at most of people who would identify as heathen are second generation so many of our members and people who identify as heathen are converts from christianity and so one of the things that we're having to do is kind of figure out what of our spiritual worldview is is aligned with those pre-Christian views that we're trying to recreate and what of it is culturally just kind of baked in mm-hmm. thanks to Christianity's domination of Western culture. Yeah. Do you all have meetings? Uh, like, I'm not saying for the big organization, but in your own group, do you have online meetings, in-person uh, meetings? Well, the, the big organization has online meetings on the regular, um, and in, including educational meetings. We have uh, uh, what we call Heathen Essentials 101, uh, it's a learning through the myths and, and kind of a guided study through some of the, of the texts of the Eddas. And that, that meets uh, either, I think, monthly. And for our organization, as I said, we're a service and education organization. We're not necessarily a denomination in the mm-hmm. traditional Christian sense. But within our organization, we have groups and we have individuals in those groups. Uh, the term is kindred, kind of the equivalent to the Wiccan coven or a Christian congregation. And they can be as small as a single family unit, or it could be as big as 20 to 30 people. Um, our CEO is a part of a, a much larger group. They have six or seven families. It's almost like a commune mm. where they meet up on the regular. There's mutual aid, and it's... it's mm. I'm jealous, to be quite frank. Um, uh, where I'm at, we have a very loose collective of general pagans and some heathens uh we meet up once a month at the local meadery uh just like where where is that like what uh, kind of huntsville place alabama but what kind of place is a local uh, meadery the local like meadery is, is what's well, a-, a fantastic place it's just this tiny little meadery tucked into an artist collective that's in an old cotton mill in downtown huntsville right, yeah. uh ravenwood meadery it's they they uh you know, we know everybody there. They've got and they they set aside this nice big table with sheepskin rugs over on the benches, and we just sit and talk paganism and heathenry uh, once a month. So, one of the things that Christians are from the traditions that I come from are right. trying to do is to modernize the expression of Christianity. Like, how do you figure out how to not have to be a third century? Roman or a first century Palestinian, right? You know, or a seventeenth century, you know, Swiss person to be Christian, right? And so, a lot of people work really hard to do that, right? To modernize Christianity. 
Some people don't want to do that. They, they go old-timey, but some people really want to modernize. Is that true inside of heathenry, too? Are there people oh, who... absolutely. Absolutely. In heathenry, we have, we have modern heathens who... Okay, so one of our, our basic, basic rituals is called a blot, B-L-O-T. Um, it, the old, old word stand, translates directly into blood because it would involve an animal sacrifice. Now, modernly, what we, we, we can use water uh, to, and with the pine branch to bless the, the individuals in the ritual. Some people will use mead or wine, if that's the case. And then we have what, uh, they, and they self-identify as this. They're called reconstructionists. And they wow. make every single possible effort to go full 10th century pre-Christian with the garb and the animal sacrifice and like they they reconstruct some of the language for their rituals they go old school not necessarily my bag but i mean they clearly enjoy it and i they're getting something out of it the braided beard is not a common thing that's, <laughs> no. that's a carl thing that's the, the not braided beard thing. so i freely admit uh the genetics uh started to take the hair up top and i said well i'm gonna see if i can grow it long enough to braid it one time and it got to about here and i'm like i kind of like this uh, and it just kept going and now it's my thing yeah <laughs> yeah, just, yeah now it's this just is my signature. life now yeah but uh but that's more of a carl look it is than it is a heathen look right is there a particular heathen like we're here at the parliament of the world religions right right a lot of religions have a look they have head coverings they have things you wear they have pieces that are emblematic of something. Is there something like that inside your version of heathenry that is marking as a heathen? There is not, actually. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I don't know if you've seen, there were news articles a while back that started coming around, if you keep track of uh, what's going on in the military. Uh, some heathens mm-hmm. were actually requesting waivers for beards like the Sikhs have. And while some uh, some heathen organizations and priests may do that. Um, there is no heathen look. So um, they didn't get it because they couldn't make an argument they, they, that across they won't the get board it from heathens. us. But yeah. some some out there might. Again, we're yeah. not really a denomination, but uh, we are an organization that has respect and reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and speaking of the military, uh, I don't know if you're aware the heathen uh, Thor's hammer, the Mjolnir is a, uh, and this happened five, six years ago, is a valid choice for veterans for their gravestone now. The Wiccan Pentacle was about ten years ago. Uh, I'm good friends with uh, some of the people who did that work, but the Heathen Mjolnir is now an option for veterans on their uh, grave grave marker and dog tags. When you see the Marvel, and I want to make sure I'm in the right universe, when you see the Marvel movie expressions, right, of this stuff. Does that help what you all are doing? Or are you like, oh, come on, what you're doing with that? You know, like, like other traditions have to do when there's a Hollywood version of their thing. Yeah. So, the, um, if, if you remember a, a while ago, I mentioned Ausatru as true to the gods. Um, some of the online heathen community have coined the the rather caustic term of Marvel true. Oh, this is just the best. For the folks who... And, and I... I gr- Personally, um, the organization doesn't really have a stance on it, but personally, I appreciate anything that gets the Norse deities okay. out into the public consciousness because, quite frankly, we have a lot of folks 
who, who come to our organization and say, you know, I saw the Marvel movies and now I'm seeing signs of Loki or Thor everywhere. What should I do next? And it's like, it, it, it kind of, it's a weird kind of evangelism sure. for us. But there are others who kind of go in, a, in that, that odd direction with worshiping Tom Hiddleston. And it's like, that's not quite what we're after. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it is just such a treat to me. Um, obviously, gift giving is the center of the heathenry that you're talking about. I started right. with that reading. What is the gift that heathenry has that Christianity ignored or demolished or set aside when it moved heathens into Christianity? Like, what was left behind that you think is really the... No one has asked me that question yet, so this is... we got to get the wheels turning. Um, I think one of the things that a lot of folks have... Uh, have, have found and appreciated is a closer connection to to the earth. There, there is an animism and a, a nature spirituality side to heathenry as well. When we talk about gift giving, uh, one of the traditions that um, fell out of favor with the conversion to Christianity was... Um, dressing up and offering like the last sheaf of wheat or whatever in leaving it out in the field as an offering in thanks or you know praying or directly offering to thor for rain and thunder for fertility and that kind of reciprocity cycle of having the connection um, and, and this is, again, just my personal yeah. experience and, and viewpoint, but the, the, in my experience, the, the Christian perspective was the, the Christian God just gave you everything. Yeah. And, and you, you are grateful for that. But he just gave it to you, and now you, have, you are expected to, to worship him in, in gratitude and respect and kind of pass that along to your fellow man. It's kind of a, a a cascade. God gave to Jesus, who gave to humanity, who then you give to your fellow man. Got it. And one thing that I've really appreciated about heathenry is the gods give to us, and we give back to the gods in gratitude. And it, it's never giving an, an equal thing. Hmm. It's, it's giving offerings, and you know, that we give back to the land. We give back to, we give to our fellow man, and they may pass it along, which then eventually may cycle back to us, or it may not. Wow. But the gift giving cycle feels, to me, more intimate because it's between each being and each moment, with less reciprocity kind of built into the exchange. Kind of, yes. Yeah. yeah. Carl, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. It has, yes. What else do we know about heathenry? Is there, is there anything else that we didn't... Uh, there, I, I could talk for hours. There is yeah. so much to know about heathenry. Okay. Um, but, again, you can... That's a good thing to know, is that there's a lot. There is so... There's a lot out there. Right. Um, this is this is volume one. There are three, and each... Two, you know, two and three are bigger than this one. Wow. We have a lot to say. Um, the troth.org is our website. T-R-O-T-H. 
T H E T R O T H, thetroth.org. The tr- yeah. Okay. Yep. And uh, yeah, you can find out a lot about us, about us there. And um, it's, it's Thank you. been a great, great opportunity. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> uh, I mean, come on. Come on. Literally <laughs> can't make it. Literally can't, can't make it up. It's just. And it's funny so too because great. I was thinking during this uh, this video of growing up in a church world where uh, if you like if some of the people I went to church with knew I had a pagan or a heathen on our podcast they'd be like whoa buddy like that would be viewed with such fear and like just talking to someone would would be a huge taboo. And uh, I almost think it's because someone knew like, oh, once you talk to people from different faith traditions, you realize there's so much like us. There's more in common than uh, we realized. And uh, maybe we don't have to be afraid of our neighbors. (laughs) Right. Right. Like exclusivity is a real problem, right? For so many reasons that are obvious. And then for a few that sneak up on you, like, if you think your group has to be the only one that fill in the blank has access to God or has a sophisticated way of understanding the world or compels people to care for one another, whatever it is that you believe your faith way is uniquely able to give you, then you end up needing everybody else to not have the good things that you have, right? So you become, it's a strange yeah. impulse to become stingy with the thing that you think is provided by your faith, as opposed to a generous spirit, which says, oh, and this is this is why I'm a Christian, because I think that the New Testament and Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the other writers were all into this stuff. Like, hey, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is right, mm-hmm. like be about those things. <laughs> don't, don't be picky and don't, don't be like separating yourself out from those other people as if you're the only ones that are exclusive. And look, religion, as every one of them, has a way to be exclusive. Our conversations, we did many more we did there, were all from people of different traditions, whether they're formal uh, traditions that you'd know well or ones that feel a little bit more association-like, like, you know, paganism and heathenry or, you know, the Oberon's contribution, that... um all of these are, are, I forgot what I was even going to say now, but all of these are providing some way forward, uh, right, for people to try to make sense of it all. And I was struck by, because I'm around a lot of people who've given up on Christianity, right? A lot of my friends, a lot of people we work with, a lot of just yeah. people in public. And oftentimes you have people who will just, and I don't critique anybody for reasons they left or why they left or how they explain it, whatever's fine. But sometimes people thing is like, yeah, I just don't buy that anymore. And then you get people like Carl, who's like, okay, my critique about Christianity runs a little deeper. And I'm going to carry that critique over into another area to try to figure out if there's a way to understand the world that can answer those critiques more fully than the religion that I that I started in. And I found that really fascinating. Like yeah. his ability to articulate his struggle with Christianity wasn't that he was mad at Christians. He just found it dissatisfying. Mm. And he said, there's another thing I want to try to figure out. And this way of thinking about the world helps me solve that and has a real gift uh, back to the rest of you. I, I just thought it was, uh, yeah. uh, 
And we talk a lot in our circles about what belief does for you in your life. Like why, not just why you believe what you believe, but what, what does it do in your life? And Mm -hmm. I feel like these conversations point out that the practice of religion, the community, the, the actions, what you wear, what you read, um, is almost as important as what you believe. Like, like a person like Carl seems like he was looking for uh, belonging. He was looking for something that more people could belong to. That's why they went in this inclusive direction. Uh, but it's not just a social club either. You want like these rituals and these practices that ground you in something. And uh, I just think that's really interesting. Totally. <laughs> totally. Just... Just so, um, it, what, what, when, when you're in a religion like Christianity can be, where it feels like all of the, all the big questions already have the accepted answer to them. What are we up to? Why are we here? How do we get along? All this. And when it's like a reference book where you just flip to that part of the book and slide down and, and read the dilemma, and then there's the answer the way a lot of people feel about religion and Christianity, that it's providing those kinds of one-to-one correlations, it really makes it kind of boring. And both Oberon and Carl, their approaches, at least for them, felt to me like it was all exploratory still, right? Like it was, there was an open-endedness to to it. It, it, And maybe it's because it doesn't have the same rich you know, thousands of years of traditions of millions and millions of people and full industries behind providing the answers and clarity and, 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 you know, laser like focus. But there's something in both of these that feels super interesting. And I couldn't help but think the early days of Christianity, as I read about them in church history and in the records that we have and the, you know, the gospels and, and New Testament writings felt more like what these guys were describing as their experience inside their religion than most of us experience inside of that very Christian religion, right? Like yeah. had that early vibey, like, hey man, we're figuring this out. And right. this is a little this is this is a little squishy. And you read uh, about that in Acts, you know, they're like, well, we've got this issue where like some people aren't getting enough food. We've got these widows. They're like, we have to come up with something to make sure that the widows are yeah. taken care of and like that becomes a part of the religion itself. And you can see yep. that at work with like these relatively new religions in the case of Oberon's church or hearkening back and uncovering something even more ancient in Carl's case. Uh, it's really yeah. interesting. And then Carl's like, you know, Hey, we got to figure out, uh, you know, how we, how we don't get dragged back into this textual argument because that text was written in a very specific context. And I don't want somebody using the text as a club that's going to beat me up around. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all in it. And the whole like January 6th, like the QAnon shaman had some of the pagan heathen Norse uh, symbolism and, they're running into the same troubles that we are. We're like, yes. not all Christians are not all heathens. You know, it's like, look, there's, there's some people trying to move this thing forward and others trying to pull it back into a darker time. And that seems to be a, a universal struggle. 
Yeah, right. I feel like Dan. No, just a little side note here for you know people can see us do our other work. We should pull that clip of Carl when we do the uh, Christian nationalism training as sort of yeah. a little side note for people. Like, hey, by the way, if you're bothered by the fact that the Christian that the guys inside the Senate chamber leading the insurrection were doing you know a Christian prayer. Also know that the that the heathens were quite bothered by what was going on because <laughs> the tattoos in that yeah. an entirely other uh, uh, set of signs about how a member of their community or someone who's using the signs of their community was in there was in there doing that. And we we do live in this in this real mashed up world. So yeah, that was just all just. But look, I mean, this is this is the thing that uh, this podcast I hope provides for people to listen to it that I hope our organization Vote Common Good does for people. Just the daily reminder of how interesting people are. Just get them talking for 30 minutes and by golly, people are interesting. Which which makes me think this. For those of you that are regulars in this chat, you know, Kimberly Yabbitts, Jim, Peggy, uh, Alex, uh, Mark, others, you know, a bunch of you that are regulars, I feel like we should interview some of you sometime. Think what you know. We we should we should turn the tables. Maybe do two of you uh, in a session or something like this, and just yeah. just do what we do. With other people with you all because you're equally as interesting uh, and helpful. Your story is a guide for for others that they would find so helpful. So, if any of you are interested in that, reach out yeah. to uh, reach out to note, us and shout out to Jim. Uh, he's going to be gone for a month. Uh, we'll miss you, Jim. Jim, where Jim, where are you going for a month? What what, what are you going to be doing that you that you're, that you're away for a month? You, he might already be out of the oh, chat. Gone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll never know. Now we can make up a story we'll about where Jim in a month. Yep. Okay. All right, y'all. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for being a part of all of this. Um, um, Kimmy, we'd love to have you. Uh, love to have you in on this too. All right. Uh, all right. From the hey, great, great line from a uh, Jackson Brown song called "The Rebel Jesus." Which, if you don't know that song, you get done here, go into places where you listen to music and look up "Rebel Jesus" by Jackson Brown, and he has this great line at the end where he's been critiquing Christianity and Christmas a little bit, and then he says, um, uh, "This is a blessing to you from a pagan and a heathen who's on the side of the Rebel Jesus." So uh, if we could play those songs without having a copyright strike, we would. Um, But uh, it's a great little line from a pagan and a heathen who's on the side of the rebel Jesus, he says. So I feel like like now, I mean, I feel like I became a Janus last week. And now I'm like a Moranian. I mean, people have already been calling me a heathen. (laughs) You're like, hey, thanks a lot. Working hard on my Nordic Nordic God. I just really feel like I'm a novice. I'm still a Nordic novice uh, on this heathenry. All right. See y'all. Bye. Bye.